Now, uh, first of all, I know some women are looking up here and they're saying, mm, 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 mm. what is wrong with his outfit? Now, I'm going to tell you, ladies, first of all, for men, we don't wear outfits. <laughs> we just wear pants and shirts, right, Dana? I do have some funky-looking shoes on, and I'll tell you why. I, I don't have dementia or anything like that. I um, had the privilege of being in Big Bend National Park this past week and went hiking, uh, all different types of hiking. You know, there are mountains there, and there's lush green, and then there's the desert at the bottom. And on our second day there, I stubbed my big toe on one side. So I've been wearing these sandals. I don't ever wear sandals. As a matter of fact, I got these for $3 at Goodwill <laughs> in Marfa, Texas. So you never know. Now, I don't know nothing about no preaching. <laughs> so this is a talk. But I, there's something really important I want to tell you here at the beginning. There are times when you need to say yes to your pastor or church leaders. And I'll tell you why. It's one of the ways that you can know God's will. One of the means available to us in discerning or figuring out God's will is, is when church leaders approach us about doing certain things because they recognize and affirm something that the Holy Spirit is already doing in your life. Now, I hope that you pray for our staff when I do, I specifically pray that God gives them the ability to single out people in the congregation who God is already working on, preparing them for whatever type of service, for greater responsibility, or maybe even for a ministry, for the church to operate properly. Gifted people should be using that gift for God's service and his glory. You see, God knows exactly what the church needs. And he's always there, when, when there is a need, he's always there in the background manufacturing a way to fill that need. Always. I've seen it happen over and over again. Don't you know that that could be you? He could be building you up to fill a committee assignment, to be in choir, to go on a mission trip, to teach a children's Sunday school class, or even pursue service, ministry service. Now, I'm not going to look up when I say this, okay? I know some of you continue to say no. I've been on the leadership team and have had to ask people to serve on committees and such. But don't you understand that God uses the church, people, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to call people to commitment. There's rarely, there are a few other ways that this happens. It just doesn't spontaneously happen in your life. Very rarely do people volunteer for a higher responsibility. I've just had that experience in the past, right, Gail? <laughs> it just doesn't happen unless there's some kind of power issue, an ego issue. Don't always say no when the pastor asks you to do something. Now, I feel fairly confident, and you will too in a few minutes, that God is not calling me to preach. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that when there is an opportunity and your pastor asks you to do it, that you don't. So I got an email on Thursday of last week, say, and I was in Big Ben. Now, I did have my Bible with me, but I didn't have anything else with me. 
and saying, you know, would you do the service because Greg's doing this and Justin's doing this and Ed's just getting back and, you know, we're, we're down to nothing. It, it was going to be me or Dana. <laughs> and by the way, Dana, I, I, figure, uh, I heard that we have to take up an offering for you. There wasn't anything on Facebook this week about you needing some money? Oh, okay. Yes. <laughs> now, the one thing that I do know about I don't know nothing about no preaching, but I do know something about books. And since the preacher is doing this series on hymns, I thought, you know, me being so qualified to do this, why don't I bring some special hymnals to show you, just, just as kind of a way to get, get us started here. And plus, we haven't done that. And I think it's really interesting, especially in our denomination, how we've approached this over the years. So I've got a few examples here. And uh, the older ones, yes, I have to put on the cotton gloves. So let me. This first one is a miniature book. Uh, All around the world, a miniature book is supposed to be three inches. The spine is supposed to be three inches or less. But in the United States, I don't know why, we'll accept four inches. So this is a little below four inches, but this is a Methodist uh, Salster or hymn book, and uh, these were very precious items, and they were given as gifts, and so this particular one has the woman's name right here on the front. You see how thick it is, and it was printed in 1813. It's the Methodist pocket hymn book, so that you could always have it with you, revised and improved, and I love this, designed as a constant companion for the pious. <laughs> but printed right in New York City in 1813. Now, of course, these do not have music notation with them. There's just the the lyrics to the songs, and many of these people would recognize the hymn, or sometimes it'll it'll say, sung to the the music of, and it'll be maybe a popular song that people would know. But uh, this is a really nice uh, leather-bound saucer from 1813. Now, this one is really important. I'm curious to know if Dana even knows about this. I mean, it looks terrible. Um, and this was owned by somebody who took really good care of it, uh, but obviously they used it so much that it broke several times, so they have repaired it with fabric and probably some type of glue, uh, but it didn't work for very long because the cover comes right off. But This, by the way, was purchased by the library in the 1920s when people were sell in the 1930s when people were selling books at really inexpensive prices but we do know that this was owned by J.C. Means in Paris, Illinois and this is called the Kentucky Harmony uh, it was printed in 1816 it is the first southern shape note hymnal uh, and it was done in parts and the shapes are not what we're used to unless you grew up in that tradition Uh, But it's Kentucky Harmony or a choice collection of psalm tunes, hymns, and anthems in three parts. Taken from the most eminent authors and well-adapted to Christian churches, singing schools, or private societies. Written by Ananias Davison, or or compiled by, really, he didn't write all the songs. But he he says he's not going to give a very long introduction, but he goes through five pages, a very tiny print, And I love, some of you may be able to see how big these letters are down at the bottom of this page. That's the copyright. In 1816, this was um, sort of the prototype for all of the later shape note hymnals that were produced in the United States. 
And by the way, the Kentucky Library has one of the largest shape note hymnal collections in the country. Just because it's a tradition that has continued even to this day in this country. Do you realize that in Baptist churches all across the country, until 1940, when B.B. McKinney compiled the Broadman hymnal, how many of y'all sang out of the Broadman hymnal? Probably everybody. Everybody that's under a certain age. Um, I, I even, the little church that I grew up in, this is the hymnal we were using because we couldn't afford the new Baptist hymnal. This was 1940. It was not denominate, it was denominationally sort of approved, but it, was the, it wasn't the official hymn book because we are a denomination that believes in the autonomy of the local church. They can make whatever decisions they want. And so there was never an official Baptist hymn book for many, many years. So it took until 1940 before this one was done. And this one is, it even says in the introduction, it's using the rounded notes. So they're not square, you know, they're not shaped notes. They're all rounded. And then in 1956, uh, the denominational leadership said, you know, we really do need a uniform hymnal for Baptist churches, Southern Baptist churches across the United States. So I can say this, the Sunday School Board um, had a group of experts compile this. And so this is the first one in 1956. And then uh, some of you remember this one, because this is the next one, 1975 and then 1991, and believe it or not, I did not know this, and we're going to have to buy one, there is a new Baptist hymnal. It's not called a Baptist hymnal anymore, uh, but it was published in 2008, uh, and so there are still hymnals that are being used in, in churches today, and, and it, it, they are different. You know, in, 19, in the 1975 version, we have that God of earth and outer space. It's not in the 1991, and it's not in the 1956 one at all, of course. So just thought, just a little hymn, hymnal lesson there uh, for you. Uh, tonight's hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, uh, written by Horatio Spafford, is really one of the most beloved hymns of all time, isn't it? I, I love singing it, and I think it's because of that swelling of it, you know, and, and then that uh, antiphonal part in the uh, refrain that is so nice to sing back. Uh, and it's, so people like the music, they like the lyrics of it, uh, but part of it is, you, you can't fully appreciate it unless, one, you're a believer, and we'll, go, we'll get into that in a minute. But secondly, you can't fully appreciate it until you know the story behind it. And I'll tell you what happened one day. I am, I'm at work, and people bring in things all of the time. They want to you know, know how much this Declaration of Independence is worth, which they bought at the, you know, the Chicago Historical Society. And I'll, I'll turn it around, and I'll say, look, this says... Chicago Historical Society. It's not one of the original ones. It's, it's worth what you paid for it. But they bring in all kinds of things. And so one day, uh, a, a, a young lady uh, came in and she said, I want to know what to, I need to do to preserve this page. I've had people bring in like napkins that they, you know, one of them that Donnie Osmond wiped his face on, you know, what can I do to help? I'm, I'm serious. I can't make this stuff up. This lady comes in, she's got a page out of a telephone book. Now, my first reaction, but I've learned to temper myself. My first reaction is phone books are made to be thrown away. They are temporary. They're just like newspapers. They're, they're not on, printed on good paper. They're not meant to last. So my first reaction was just throw it away. Uh, make a photocopy of it. That'll at least preserve whatever information you wanted. 
This, this is the difference between knowing the story behind something and just seeing it in person. So knowing this song and knowing the story behind it really helps bring it out. Because the reason that young woman brought that page in from the phone book is she said, look at the top of it. And it had written at the top, will you marry me? She said, my future husband and I got in a phone booth because it was raining outside, and this was all planned. Uh, and she, he said, okay, call your mom. And he said, look at, I know my mom's phone number. She said, look it up. So she looks it up, and there it is written on the page, will you marry me? Now you understand why that page out of a phone book was really important to her. I think once you see this video, because I could retell this story easily enough, but this video uses documents and photographs that are at the Library of Congress to tell the story about this hymn and the man who wrote it. And I think once you see the story behind it, some of you know the story about the ship and all of that, but there's much more to this story than that. So can you run that bean footage? Okay.
that's pretty powerful, isn't it? I mean, I knew about the, the ship accident, but I had no idea about losing his, his home in the fire, his first son. Basically, he lost all of his children. Uh, I'm looking at some people. I know you love your daughters. I know you do. I, I can't even begin to imagine. I don't have any children. I can't begin to imagine what it would be like to lose all of your children. I, I, it just, I, I can't even feel it in my heart because I don't have that experience. But to know that this man lost all of that and then he ends up his life in ministry, that's a beautiful thing. And it is, uh, as I said, it has been a perennial favorite of every congregation that I've ever been a member of. We love being able to sing it. Those of us who have surrendered our life to Christ and acknowledged and accepted that, that atoning work that was done on the cross, we are really the only ones who can understand this song. We're the only ones who can truly say, it is well with my soul. And I think that's going to come out in the scripture tonight because Tom picked a perfect scripture to go along. As a matter of fact, it's so perfect that I'm going to show you how it almost looks like Spafford took some of the scripture and used it in two of the verses. Uh, many of the doctrinal truths contained in this song are going to be right in the scripture that we read tonight. Now, we don't worship the Bible, but we understand its importance. So I never mind asking people like our preacher does to stand as we read the scripture. So we're going to be reading in Romans 5. And the verses are 5 through 11. And hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, Having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Okay, you can be seated. For a brief moment, let me just give you a little bit of context here for this passage. And context is always really important. This is what historians do. I know y'all don't probably think historians sit around and read books all the time. But one of the things we do is we set things in context. To take a national or international event and set it in context to figure out why it happened and how it happened. And so I've always known context is important. I'll tell you a good example of when I really heard this come true. Linda... You will love this, Linda Owen. Uh, I had a shopping friend who, who unfortunately died earlier this year uh, who was the mother of a daughter. She loved to shop too, mother and daughter, just peas out of the pod. They love to shop, but they are two different shoppers. And, and you husbands know the difference, I think. One person likes to pick up everything pick it up, look at it, figure out how they might use it in their house or how they might wear it, the accessories they might put with it. 
uh, these are the type of men or women, I won't be discriminatory, that you don't want to go shopping with. I'm just being honest. Right, Dana? You just don't want to shop with. I mean, I don't. The other person still liked to shop, but she was the one who could look across the store and find the things that she wanted to shop and, and look at and, and really pick up and figure out what she could do with. The other person, everything. So they go into this antique store, and the one is, you know, looking at everything, and the other is just kind of going to piece to piece. And the daughter says, Mom, come over here. You've got to see this. So the mom comes over. Of course, the mom was in her 80s. So the daughter holds up this ceramic pot, and she says, what is this? She knows what it is, but she says, what is this, Mom? She said, oh, well, that's a chamber pot. Now, some of us grew up in the country, know what a chamber pot is. That was something, that was the indoor bathroom without the flush. That's what you kept underneath the, the bed, you know, at night, and if you needed it, that's what you brought out. Some people irreverently referred to it as the thunder jug. So you know what I mean. So she holds it up, and she said, I, you have got to read the label inside. Well, the mother's thinking, oh, it, it's, there must be asking an astronomical price for it or something. So the daughter holds it down so she can read the label, and it, it gives the price, and then it says, beautiful bowl would be great for popcorn. <laughs> so you see, context is important, right? Well, Romans was written, of course, by Paul to the, the Christians at, of course, Rome. And it is a very doctrinal book. The overall theme of the book is about the righteousness that comes only from God. The glorious truth that God justifies guilty, condemned sinners like you and I by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I mean, preacher says this all the time, right? The first 11 chapters present the theological truth about that doctrine, and then the remaining chapters are the practical outworking of that truth, both for individuals and for the church as a body. Now, the first part of chapter 5, which we got into, deals with the security of salvation and our faith despite troubles and trials. So it goes along perfectly with the song. This was a really important message to the Roman Christians because they were under persecution. Now, we learn some things about ourselves in these scriptures, and we learn some things about God's nature in these scriptures. So first, about us. And I'm just going to tell you up front, it's not all good. But, but it is good news. The good news is that we are sinners, but God still loves us. Thank goodness. But in verse 6, one of the first things that we find out about ourselves is that we are without strength. Now, this literally means powerless. Now, I don't know how many times in your life you have felt powerless. I, I can, as, as I thought about this this week, I thought there were at least a couple of times that I remember feeling powerless. And many of you maybe have fallen before. And, you know, when you're at a certain point in the fall, there's nothing you can do. You're just powerless. You're going to fall. But I remember uh, at age, oh, I guess I was about 50, uh, I'm riding my bicycle trying to be healthy and everything in the mornings, and I'm down there behind the cemetery. I shouldn't have been riding behind the cemetery, but I go down there, and there's this real steep hill. Well, it had rained the night before, and there are leaves on the pathway there, and, of course, I get going fast, and I'm going down that hill, and I, that bike just slid right out from under me. 
But I, I remember that was a moment, and I do remember it was just a moment. I was powerless, and so unfortunately, I fall on my shoulder and break my arm and have to do that when you're 50 years old. Never broken anything before that, but have to carry a cast around for six weeks or however long it was. The other time that I remember really being uh, powerless, I, I didn't know what to do, is uh, one winter, everything went wrong. I, I got the shingles, uh, something else happened, and then I got pneumonia. Well, it was a progression, you know. You know, you get the little cough, and then you get bronchitis, and, and it turned into pneumonia. And I remember one night, I was just uh, in bed there, and they'd already given me that treatment, you know, where you breathe in the stuff. And, and uh, honestly, this is honest truth, I couldn't breathe. Now, I don't know if you, any of you have been in that situation, but it is, it's frightening, and I was powerless to do, I didn't know what to do. I got up and walked around and finally I caught my breath. But that was a moment of helplessness. That is exactly the situation that we are in as sinners in alleviating our sin problem. There is, we are helpless, quite honestly, in alleviating that. You know, you can read all the self-help books. And I did like the preacher, you know, I want to be like the preacher tonight. I got on the internet. And I said, give me some silly sounding uh, um, titles for some self-help books. So I clicked on one site, and the first one was How to Be the Pope, What to Do and Where to Go Once You're in the Vatican. Well, none of you are going to be doing that, right? But I'm going to tell you this. There were 10 of them. They said these are the 10 most weird um, uh, self-help books, self-help titles. Do you know, I can't even tell you about the other ones. I, it's sad to say. Uh, the other ones were just filthy. It was a shame. I'm, I'm really serious. But I want you to see that helpless, which Paul is telling us that we are in dealing with our sin situation, look at what Horatio Spafford said in the second verse. Though Satan should buffet, though trial should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. Well, we are helpless. Another thing we find, and it's in verse 6 also, is that we are ungodly. Now, this does not necessarily mean what you're thinking. It just means we're the exact opposite of God. You know, God is perfect. Even, I see some people back there, like, like in the Jenkins row back there, uh, you guys aren't perfect. <laughs> I love you, but you're not perfect. God is love, and quite frankly, sometimes we find it hard to even love ourselves, much less someone else. God is forgiving and always willing to forgive. And, and not only for, to forgive, but I love this, Miss Al, he not only forgives, he forgets. That's the beautiful thing. Now, I don't know about you guys. I can forgive. But it is really hard to forget. And I know some of you husbands are <laughs> confirming that for me. And God is compassionate. And sometimes we can be pretty harsh, to be honest. Uh, this, this little organ right here can just start flapping, and all kinds of bad things can happen from it. So we're reminded that we are ungodly. And then in verse 10... It even says that we are the enemies of God. Now, this doesn't mean the enemies like in an active combat with each other. It just means that you don't have any relationships with e relationship with each other. 
your enemies. You just don't talk to each other. There's no interaction at all. So these are not great things to find out about yourself, are they? That you're helpless, that we are ungodly, and that we, without Christ, we are enemies of God. But thank God, despite our helpless estate, in verses 7 and 8 of, of this chapter, we find out some things about God's nature as exhibited through Jesus Christ. And Tom, uh, he gave me a little bit of an outline. Now, I'm just telling you, it was a little bit of an outline. It was like a skeleton. He said, well, I was going to focus on, you know, that I might die for Jan or one of our children or uh, my grandchildren. And I'm thinking, well, that doesn't help me. So I, I did begin to contemplate, though, who might I die for? Now, I'm going to tell you, this, this does have a little bit of relativity with age, doesn't it? The older you get, the more you are willing and you, you want to see someone be able to live their life as you have lived yours. And so many times you're more willing to, to be able to um, sacrifice a life. Some of you started that when you had children. You know, no greater love hath man than to give up his life. I'm going to tell you something there. Now, theologically, I know I'm on a real shaky ground here, but I want you to think about it at least. Think about that not so much as giving up your physical life, but in giving up your will. In giving up your will. Some of you began that life when you got married. You started to give up part of your will so that you could please and work alongside a husband or a wife. And then both of you together sometimes gave up a little bit of your will so that you could have children. And you wanted the best for them. And so you gave up a little bit of your time and effort and will. And I'm going to tell you, there, there's a lot of truth in that with our spiritual life. When we begin to give up our will to God, we're, we're giving up our life in a sense. But to receive something so much better and greater, the abundant life then that we can enjoy in him. So I can't give you a good example. I will say that I think, at, at least at my age now, 58, uh, that I'm beginning to, to get to the point where I think some of my nephews and nieces, I would be willing, if, if it was necessary, to possibly give up my life. I can even, believe it or not, I can even think of a couple of people in this church that I probably, that have meant enough to me over the years and have nourished me and helped me and, and it's been a mutual experience. I think that I would be willing to give up my life. I say that, you know, and then somebody points a gun at me and says, are you going to give up your life for Gail? <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> she did say something to me a couple of years ago that didn't sit right with me. <laughs> but you see what I'm saying? I, I, don't have, I don't have the experience that some of you have with children and grandchildren. I know, I know how proud you are of them and how much you love them. I see that in your eyes. I see that in the actions that you have with them. Um, but I, I can't, I don't have that same experience. The scripture says that someone might die for a righteous man. And maybe even some for a good man. But here's what I want you to remember. We are neither one of those. Without Christ, we're neither one of those. To think that someone would die for me, I'm not righteous without Christ. And I can't even be called good. You know, Jesus didn't even want to be called good. I can't even be called good. 
So the thought that somebody might die for me because I'm righteous or good, just it, there's, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't compute. We are neither one of those things. But here is, now I will say the preacher can sometimes really hit you. So he put this question in, and wow, it is a tough question. So the first question was, who would you die for? This is the tougher one. Who would die for you? Now, I'm just saying, my list was really short. <laughs> I kept thinking, now, who would die for me? Not my mean old sisters. They wouldn't do it. And, uh, and I thought of some of my nephews and nieces. Well, they wouldn't die for me. I know Linda Owen wouldn't. I, you know, because I, I've played too many tricks over, on her over the years. I, that's a hard question, isn't it? Who would die? Now, I can't answer that first question, who you might die for. But quite honestly, even though I had some difficulty in figuring out who might die for me, I do know someone who was willing to die for you. And that, of course, is Jesus Christ. He's, and he's already done it. Never, we are, as a preacher tells us over and over again, and he is so right, we are never more like Christ than when we are giving. This is exactly what Christ did for us. He gave up his will. He did that in Gethsemane. You know, when uh, I got to go with the first group that went to Israel, I don't even remember how long ago it was now, and uh, it was wonderful. I loved seeing everything, and, you know, the Bible, things, certain things made more sense. Uh, but the place that really got me was we went into the Garden of Gethsemane, and she's talking all about the olive trees and all that, and it's interesting. And, and then we go inside that that. Um, I don't want to call it a church, it's a a shrine. And uh, all these beautiful uh, mosaic tiles on the walls and all of this. And then I look over at one end of that shrine and there is a big old rock right inside the building, a big old rock. You know, a rock doesn't belong in here. And a rock didn't seem to belong there, but it's a whole reason that shrine was built is because that's where Jesus is I'm going to say, faith in his father met the road. Because at that rock, he gave up his will so that his father's will could be accomplished. And that's how much Jesus loves us also. Well, what was the purpose of the death? I think we all know. We're seasoned believers here. Uh, And it is a love... um, that will never depart. It is, we have a secure love with Christ. Let me uh, keep going over here to my Bible. Let me read to you, and this is a very familiar passage to you. Paul, again, writing later on in Romans, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. He's covering everything, making sure all his bases were covered. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, and that's where we stop sometimes, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's how much he loves us. You can go ahead and answer. He, he really does love us, and, he, and it's a sustaining love. And it reminds me, the reason that this was done, this shedding of this blood. Remember in uh, Hebrews 9.22, it says, there's no 
without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. There's no forgiveness of sin without that blood. And this is something that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And so you, you know this progression. You know, God, after he, God knew about the sin all along, but he has to go out and, and you know, they're hiding. Adam and Eve are. And God provides for them skins so that they can clothe themselves after the sin. So a sacrifice was made. Of course, at the Passover, a sacrifice of a lamb for every family. And then as Judaism became more institutionalized, there was the lamb for the nation in the tabernacle first and then in the temple. And then, of course, Jesus is our lamb, the lamb for the entire world, not just the Jews, but for us also. So we're saved through him, verse 9 tells us. Again, this is, this, these are things that we know. Uh, and here, Tom was saying, oh, well, maybe I should use a sports theme here to talk about a substitute. And I thought, well, this is not going to work for me again. But, but he did give another example, and I thought it was really good, of a stuntman. If you were in a movie, and you were the star... And, and then you have to have a stuntman. Usually the stuntman's similar height and build and looks like you. So I, I thought, okay, if I was in a movie, surely Tom Cruise would be my stuntman. Oh, what are you laughing at? No, uh, the stuntman is there for one purpose only, and that is to take the star's place during hazardous moments, difficult moments. Now, I understand some stars like to go ahead and be crazy and do their own stunts, but uh, most of the time they're going to rely on people who are trained so that they don't hurt themselves. Now, I'm telling you, at 58 years old, and with this stub toe, I'm even watching how I go up and down stairs right now. So, so in a movie, you better rely on some people who know what they're doing when they're doing dangerous things like that. Do you see that God, what God did for us, he saved us from his wrath by substituting Jesus to take care of our sin problem. So he is the perfect stuntman, stand in for us to take the wrath of God. He's the only one, too, that could do that because he was perfect. He is our perfect substitute, our perfect stuntman, our perfect stand-in. I want you to look at how Spafford covered that in verse 3 of his song. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. Not that he was happy about his sin, but this thought that's about to come up. My sin, not in part, but the whole, every bit of it, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Now, that, that is something to praise him for, for sure. Now, there are all kinds of doctrinal hymns and verses that you could put in here about the substitutionary blood of Christ for us. But how much simpler can it be? What can wash away my sin? Nothing, 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 nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing, nothing, nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. 
nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh my gosh, what truth there is in that. Nothing but the blood can take that away. Nothing can make me white as snow. You know, God loves you. Are things well with your soul? Or is there something you need to do? I know, uh, I know we're, we're all home folks and everything like that, but still, we always give opportunity at the end of the service. And so there may be, there may be somebody here that needs to deal with their sin problem. And to do that, you simply have to believe that what Jesus Christ did on the cross is adequate to cover your sin, to confess him as Lord with your mouth, and to believe that he can save you. And perhaps you've maybe not followed through in believer's baptism and that obedient part, uh, that stand. Or perhaps you just need to let God be in control and just leave something here at the altar. I, I, I wrote this this week, and I, I really like it. Allowing Jesus to control, not patrol, every aspect of your life is where the rubber meets the road. Let him control, not patrol. Only when you're able to yield to him will you find peace like a river. And so now we will have an opportunity if, if you want to pray or... Um, and I will pray as Dana is giving me the motions. Um, and then we'll have a hymn of invitation. If anybody, I'm just going to come down here and pray. And if anybody else wants to come down, they certainly could. Um, so, Father, we thank you for your love for us, how you, uh, you manufactured everything so that we now could have a relationship with you, that we don't have to constantly worry about our sin problem. You've saved us from that. You've given us eternal life. I pray, Father, that we, as believers, people who've known you for years, will get re-excited about that and tell other people about it so that they can come into this knowledge with us. Father, help us as a church to constantly be watching outwards from this building so that people can come to know you. If we only look inside, we see only ourselves, but we need to be watching and, and being led by the Holy Spirit to people who need you, who are desperate right now, some people who are going to die and, and, and quite honestly face hell if we are not constantly about the purpose that you've given us to tell and to share and then to minister to people when they come into the body. And Father, right now, in this moment, if anybody needs to come down here and lay something at your feet, I pray that they would, just to yield to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand.